Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us to listen to this message. Whoever you are and wherever you're listening from, we trust that you'll be equipped, envisioned and encouraged as you listen today. I'd like to turn you to Psalm 51, please. We decided that over the summer months we'd go through this, go into some of the Psalms and just see what the Lord had for us. And um, today I want us to look at a Psalm that is, is really good news. Really good news. Uh, some of you will be familiar with it, Psalm 51. Um, I, I believe this morning that God wants to um, throw some of us a lifeline and to uh, remind all of us of how he rescued us, how he saved us. I want to thank God that we can all know breakthrough. And, and I do believe this morning that for some of us, there will be great breakthrough this morning. Uh, like, like God wants to as I say, throw you a lifeline and help you out of something. I want to thank God that we're, we are ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. And um, this psalm is going to express those things. So um, I, I warn you, health warning, uh, some of this is pretty serious. Um, but it's great, great news. Great, great news. And, and after um, I was adding up how many years I've been pastoring, caring for God's people. And in all those 25 years, um, do you know, I reckon many of the things we struggle with, we would not do so if we really understood, if we really experienced total forgiveness, which comes from total repentance. There are so many things that, that God's people struggle with. I struggle with sometimes. We struggle with things because we don't always walk in the freedom yeah, that right. is ours. So whatever we say this morning, remember, it's all good news. Okay, it's all good news. Psalm 51, let's just read this. I'm reading from the Holman. Psalm 51, a prayer for restoration. And, and the, the little title above it says this. For the choir director, a Davidic psalm, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he'd gone to Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self. 
and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and give me a willing spirit. And then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, and the God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem and then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings, and then bulls will be offered on your altar. It's an amazing... um, statement and in in many ways it stands alone as a an incredible outpouring of a contrite heart Uh, and it reminds us of of the power of confession the joy of forgiveness and uh, you know over the centuries over the centuries this psalm has helped many people come back home I know I've prayed it I'm sure there are others here. There's been a time in your life when this has been the place to turn to and you've, you've spoken the words of David. You've used this psalm as a, as a prayer and a, as a, and a way back into fellowship with God. And so um, this morning is, is for all of us, and, and um, I won't ask for a show of hands because I know what the answer will be. For all of us who've ever messed up, who've ever felt guilt, who've ever um, gone astray, and maybe, maybe you're here this morning and, and that's where you are right now. We sang earlier, didn't we? No guilt in life, no fear in death. We talked about the, the um, we, we sang that song, it says, find hope when all the world seems lost. Here it is, folks. His hope, his life, his promise. And as I say, it stands alone, um, but, but the full impact of this psalm can only really be grasped when we read the context. So I want to turn you back to 2 Samuel, chapter 11. 2 Samuel. Let's read the context, because then this prayer, this, um, this cry, this plea of David will make uh, much more sense. I know many of us will know the story, but it doesn't do us any harm to read it again as as serious as it is. It's all good news. uh, 2 Samuel 11, and we'll read from verse 1. This is is quite a long um, portion of Scripture. We're going to read into chapter 12 as well. But as as we read this, folks... um, There's so much to take note of. 
There's so many little principles in here, so much that we can learn from. And so I just want to encourage you to, to hear it and, and hear with open ears and hear with an open heart and embrace, um, embrace some of the principles that are in here. Uh, and where need be, um, it, w- it won't take long to work out what, what our actions should be as a result of these things. Let's let the word speak to us. Let's let the word um, wash through us this morning. So this is the story. 2 Samuel 11. In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And one evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he reported, This is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to him, he slept with her. Now she'd been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Afterwards, she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. David sent orders to Joab. That's his um, military commander, Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. And then he said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And so Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all his master's servants. He did not go down to his house. When it was reported to David, Uriah didn't go home, David questioned Uriah, haven't you just come from a journey? Why didn't you go home? Uriah answered David, the ark, Israel, and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, I will not do this. Stay here today also, David said to Uriah, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next, and then David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him, and David got him drunk, and he went out in the evening to lie down on his cot with his master's servants, but he did not go home. And the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it with Uriah, and in the letter he wrote, put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting, and then withdraw from him so that he's struck down and dies. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the, place, in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. And then the men of the city came out and attacked Joab, and some of the men from David's soldiers fell in battle, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Joab sent someone to report to David all the details of the battle, and he commanded the messenger, when you finish telling the king all the details of the battle, if the king's answer gets stirred up and he asks you if the king's anger gets stirred up and he asks you why did you get so close to the city to fight didn't you realize they would shoot from the top of the wall at Thebes who struck uh, Abimelech son of Jerobasheth didn't a woman uh, drop an upper millstone on him from the top of the wall and so he died why did you get so close to the wall then say 
your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And then the messenger left. When he arrived, he reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger reported to David, the men gained the advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we counterattacked right up to the entrance of the gate. However, the archers shot down on your soldiers from the top of the wall, and some of the king's soldiers died. Your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is also dead. David told the messengers, say this to Joab, don't let this matter upset you because the sword devours all alike. Intensify your fight against the city and demolish it. Encourage him. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. And when the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. However, the Lord, however, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he arrived, he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he'd bought. It lived and grew up with him and his children. It shared his meager food and drank from his cup. It slept in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who'd come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guests. David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who deserves this deserves to, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he's done this thing and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. Nathan replied to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave, you the, I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that was not enough, I would have given you even more. Why then have you despised the command of the Lord by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife as your own wife. You murdered him with the Ammonite sword. Now therefore the sword will never leave that, your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes, and he will sleep with them publicly. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel and in broad daylight. David responded, to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan replied to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. Then Nathan went home. 
Wow. What a story. What a story. And there's, um, as I said, there's so much to take from this. Let's just consider some of the things that we read in here. It begin, and there's, some, there's, many, there's many great pointers for us, folks. The first is this. We want to stay in fellowship with God. Don't be where you shouldn't be. Verse 1. In the spring, when kings march out to war, David remained in Jerusalem. The story starts because this king wasn't where he should have been. Was where he shouldn't have been. And, um, and, and in fact, he sent others instead. He sent Joab and he sent the troops with Joab. And, and so David's left in Jerusalem with time on his hands and uh, distracted and, and loses focus. Um, one thing I am learning in life is, is when I feel uncomfortable in a place, I shouldn't be there. Get out quick. I could tell you some stories, but... They might not bless you. But there's a principle there for all of us, isn't there? When you feel uncomfortable in a place, where you know you should be somewhere, be there. Where you know you shouldn't be somewhere, don't be there. That's where it all started. And then he saw Bathsheba in the bath. And he should have turned his, he should have turned his eyes away. But he kept looking. And the glance became a gaze and sin quickly took root. He made inquiries, he abused his power, he had her brought to him, he slept with her. There was, there was a chain of inevitable events. The eye contact led to physical contact. Sometimes we have to stop at the start because um, temptation and sin are no respecter of persons, are they? Even, even the Son of God was tempted in every way as we are, but without sin. But, but sin is no respecter of persons. We, we all have to stop at the start. Stop right at the start. Know our danger signs. Know our weaknesses. Know our vulnerabilities. Know our weak spots. Heed the warnings. As I read that yesterday, I, I was reminded of the the verse in um, Luke's gospel where Jesus makes this remarkable statement to Simon Peter. Well, two verses actually. One, one was, first of all, in Genesis 4 where it says, um, it says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door, yes. desires to have you. No respecter of persons. And then in Luke 22 where Jesus says to Simon Peter, Verse 31, he says, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus, Jesus saw into the, uh, the future there, saw what was happened, saw in his spirit that, that Simon was, gonna, was going to come under a great test. Satan asked if he could sift him. But Jesus says, but I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And although Simon did go through a tremendous sifting and a tremendous pressure and tremendous challenge, his faith did not fail in the end. And he could go back and, and strengthen his brothers. Let's be people who stop at the start. 
and don't let the inevitable chain of events run their course. And then, of course, it just gets worse, doesn't it? He schemes. He tries to cover up. He tries to get Uriah to go back and, and sleep with Bathsheba so everything would look okay, Uriah's child. Um, he tries again, but he finds Uriah is more righteous than he is. Uriah is governed by a sense of duty. David is being governed by his sensual desires. Uriah was loyal to David's military interests. David seems to be lost in his lustful intent. So David resorts to compromising Joab's integrity. Put the the troops under that wall where many of them die in order that Uriah um, would be killed. Here's another principle. When you consider covering something up, it's a sure sign it's time to come clean. When the thought is, how can I cover it up? How can I smooth it over? How can I, how can I deal with it? How can I accommodate it? It's a sure sign, isn't it? That's the point to come clean. Do you know, David, he coveted another man's wife. He committed adultery. He gave false testimony. He murdered. He stole her. He broke five of the Ten Commandments in this one single sordid episode. And then almost, almost above all of those things, in the judgment, it says, because you've treated the Lord with such contempt. Wow. And all of this by a man chosen, set apart by God, a man whose own self-declaration, Psalm 40, he says, I delight to do your will, my God. Your law is written within my heart. This is the heart of David, but, but this, right now, this man has, his flaws have come through, haven't they? That was his self-declaration. What a tragedy, what a shame, what an irony. How the mighty are fallen and sin is no respecter of persons. It seems a little bit after the event at the end of chapter 11 when um, Uriah is dead and, and Bathsheba's become his wife, it seems almost as if he's got away with it. Things are going to carry on. Maybe a few of the courtiers, well, some of them certainly know, some of them went to bring her. and they'll, some, some of his inner circle will have known what he did. But in the kingdom at large... It'll probably be hushed up. And um, there's a slight problem. The Lord has seen everything. And chapter 11 ends with this, this awesome statement, however the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. And the first verse of chapter 12 is also, well, it... As I read these words, it, it, it's altogether agonizing, awesome, but also, and here's the good news, amazing. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. I remember hearing Kerry preach some time ago. He talked about the, the three people we need in our lives. We all need a Barnabas. And we all need a Nathan. I can't remember what the third one was right now. We all need a Nathan. 
So the Lord sent Nathan to David. Here comes the lifeline. Here's the good news. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Hallelujah. And Nathan comes because of that sending with all authority. A man sent from God and he's ready and he's willing to stand up and he's ready and willing to stand before the king who he serves, his master. And he's ready and willing to speak out and ready and willing to be faithful to him. And he's carrying God's word for David. He's carrying God's heart for David. He's carrying God's love for David. He's carrying hope for David. He's carrying healing for David. He's carrying, if you will, wholeness for David. Because at this point, David's military strength, his, his exploits on the battlefield, his, um, the way this kingdom has come together under his united rule, it all counts for nothing. Right now, all that matters is that this man's character and integrity are put back together somehow. He's been set over God's people. He's their king. He's God's choice. And rescuing him, throwing him a lifeline, rescuing him from his sin and his scheming so that somehow he can be made whole again is the issue of the moment, isn't it? And Nathan tells this parable. Wow, it's profound, isn't it? The storyline is so simple. The rich man, the poor man. The rich man had so many, um, so many animals to choose from. The poor man has this little lamb who is like part of the family, sleeps with him. It's like a daughter to him. And when a guest comes, the rich man steals the poor man's little ewe lamb rather than taking from what was already his. The storyline is simple. The injustice is unmissable. The parallels, the relevance are unmistakable. And David being the emotional, passionate man after God's heart that he still is. He's drawn right into the story. David's drawn in and, 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 and he can't fail to be moved by the story he hears. And, and in this version, chapter, chapter 12, verse 5, it says, David was infuriated with the man. David was infuriated and he quickly pronounces the verdict. This man deserves to die. And then comes the judgment and the piercing of his own heart. You are the man. I don't think David needed to hear anything else. But Nathan goes on and explains um, all the things God has given him. I gave you the kingdom. I gave you, I gave you all souls, um, harem, concubine. They were all yours given you wives if that wasn't enough I'd have given you more wow and Nathan spells out the kindness the favor the privilege the goodness of God and spells out then all the consequences of his sin and it's at this point that David's future hangs in the balance in fact the kingdom hangs in the balance at this point David stands accused, guilty, naked, no defense left standing. Will his rebellion go even further? Will he reject the word of the Lord? Will he make excuses? 
Will he try and shift the blame? Will he turn out to be no better after all than Saul? David's heavenly father has sent him a lifeline. And the living, powerful, active word of God has come to him. And it has power to convict and power to to judge and to sift and to disseminate. And, And David's heard it and it's pierced his heart. And he's able and willing to humble himself and see the truth and speak honestly and say, I have sinned against the Lord. Thank God David is different to Saul. Thank God he is submitted to God. Thank God he is willing to come clean, to humble himself, to admit his guilt, to acknowledge his great need for help. Thank God he is, after all, a man after God's own heart. Which brings us back to Psalm 51. So if you turn back there. Let's read it again in the light of that. For the choir director, a Davidic psalm, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, Blot out my rebellion. Wash away my guilt. Cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion. And my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone I've sinned. And done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach the wisdom, teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me. Give me a willing spirit that I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God the God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want to sacrifice or I would give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem, and then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, um, whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. It's amazing, isn't it? And, And an incredible irony, this event, this episode that David had wanted to cover up, 
It's become one of the aspects of his life that the whole world knows about. Psalm 51 is this incredible outpouring of this contrite heart. And I believe in here, I know from experience, our keys for breakthrough and forgiveness and cleansing and wholeness. So let's just take note of them as we finish this morning. First of all, it is an appeal to God's grace, God's mercy, verse 1, to God's faithfulness, to God's compassion. It is a plea that God would blot out, wash away, cleanse, turn his face away. It's the plea of a man who feels unclean, dirty, soiled, sordid. And if I could put it this way, he knows he needs a deep clean. Deep cleansing is needed. This man at this point, be he the king or whoever, whoever he might be, might be a woman, might be a man, could be any of us, who knows that what we need is God to blot out. It's the removal. David, David says later in Psalm 103, Lord, and, uh, which is reckoned to be another response to this incident, he says, Lord, you remove sin as far as the east is from the west. Yeah. Psalm 32, verse 1, he says, how happy is the man who's forgiven. Yeah. David came through this. David came through this. You can come through it. It's an admission of guilt with no excuses or no defense. I've sinned, verse 4. You are right, verse 4. I am guilty, verse 5. Indeed, I was born guilty, verse 5. But original sin is no excuse. David is living. He says, my, my sin is always before me. It's as if, it's as if all the, since that happened, until Nathan came to him, he was living a nightmare, folks. His sin was always, he knew what he'd done. It was like a nightmare he couldn't wake up from. My sin is always before me. He's living with the knowledge of his rebellion. I, I read this about, about this verse. It says, because, because the word had turned him around, he sees no longer before him the glamour of the woman he stole, nor even beside him the innocence of the man he killed, but behind him, the judgment of the God he'd turned his back on. This is how the rules were. This is how the rules work. So that when all the secondary charges have been dealt with, there remains only the one outraged by every sin. Wow. It's a revelation that God is not fooled by outward appearances, doesn't value human strength, doesn't care much for military exploit, doesn't merely want sacrifices or offerings. He looks inside at the heart wants integrity in David's heart. He wants a broken spirit. He wants a humbled heart. But it's a confidence that if God will purify him, verse 7, I will be clean. If God will wash me, I will be whiter than snow. In the midst of his guilt and his shame, David's plea is based on a confidence that God is good and restores the repentant. It's an acknowledgement that he needs God to create in him a clean heart because even the most powerful human being needs God. It's a heartfelt plea that God will not remove him from his presence, that God won't take his Holy Spirit from him. And I'm sure at that point he remembers what happened to Saul. God removed his spirit from him. And David, David knows there's nothing worse than that. 
To be pushed out of God's presence, to be excommunicated from his presence, and to have the spirit withdrawn from him. What could be worse than that? There's a point later on in 2 Samuel where because he's, um, because he's sinned again in the counting of the troops, he's got a choice, hasn't he? You can have three years of famine, or three months of, of the enemy, I think it is, or three days of a plague. And he says, I want the plague because, because there's nothing worse than to fall in the hands of men. I'd rather fall into the hands of God. David wants above all things to stay in fellowship with God. And it's an expression of worship. Look at those verses towards the end. Verse 14, verse 15. My tongue will sing of your righteousness. My mouth will declare your praise. I wonder whether the pen had dried up. I wonder whether the poetry had stopped. I wonder whether the praise had gone a bit quiet as David's living with his guilt. Would you turn with me to Psalm 32, which is another of the psalms that is... um, seem to be a part of this event, Psalm 32. Remember, it's serious, but good news. How happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered? How happy is the man the Lord does not charge with sin, in whose spirit is no deceit? When I kept silent, I've done this, haven't you? Maybe it, wasn't, maybe it wasn't as bad as my memory of it now. Maybe I'm being a bit hard on myself. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer heat. And then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you took away the guilt of my sin. It's one thing to be forgiven, isn't it? It's another to have your guilt removed. But God wants wholeness. God wants to do both for us. Perhaps the poetry had dried up, but his declaration is, I will praise you. I will worship you. Coming clean has an amazing ability to reignite our zeal and passion for the Lord. This whole episode, the psalm, the story in Samuel, is a a story of rebellion and then remorse and repentance and restoration. And it's a story of heartbreak, a broken heart, a contrite heart, and humility, and honesty, and hope, and healing, and wholeness. First, Second Samuel tells the story in, in all its horrible, sordid detail. And the psalm lays bare David's heart in all its humiliation. And I believe it's here for us so that we would know, all of us would know, there is a great future, whatever the past There's a great future, whatever the past. We can know hope and healing and wholeness, but it starts with first heartbreak and humility and honesty. Here's the lifeline, folks. It starts with heartbreak, a broken, contrite heart, seeing things as he sees them. Responding to the word of God when it comes. 
welcoming the Spirit's intervention when he speaks, when he, when he touches on something, when he shows you something, when, when there's a spotlight and something is shown and, and you know it's him, then it's, it's time to respond to that, to let the Word penetrate deeply, not to be cold-hearted, not to ignore the Spirit as he tries to help us, not to brush aside his promptings, his corrections. There must first be a contrite, broken heart. And then a humility, a willingness to abandon all our defenses and to sink to our knees and surrender all for the sake of peace and fellowship with God. With it, a total honesty and admission, a confession with no excuses, no defenses, no cover-ups, just a coming clean. One of my go-to verses is 1 John 1 verse 9, which tells us something similar. 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The cross has mighty power. The cross has mighty power. David is reaching, reaching back to Christ crucified before the foundation of the earth. He's reaching forward to the time event of the cross and the crucifixion. And he's pleading, he's admitting, he's coming before God with great confidence saying, wash me, I will be whiter than snow. There's real hope. Was David really a man after God's own heart? That's how he's described in in 1 Samuel in Acts 13. Yes, he was. Did he sin? Yes, he did. Terribly, horribly. He had flaws. He had weak spots. He had vulnerabilities. Did he repent? Yes, he did. Wholeheartedly, passionately. Was he restored? Yes, absolutely. How happy is the man whose sins God has forgiven, he says. I know the God who removes sin as far as the east is from the west, he writes. Did he have a future? Yes, he did. 20 more years on that throne, writing more psalms, writing more scripture. David had a great future. And the message for all of us this morning. Many of us will know the joy of forgiveness. That's what coming to Christ, that's what it is to stand in the power of Christ. To stand forgiven. We can rejoice in that this morning. This isn't just principle for sexual sin, although it obviously includes that. This is a principle, this isn't just a principle for first coming to Christ, first giving our lives to him, although of course it applies to us. This is a principle for living every day in fellowship with God. Living every day clean. You know, this autumn we're going to be embarking on another season of harvest, of overflow, of inviting others to experience hope and healing. Let's be sure to be living in the good of all these things ourselves. A healthy church, a clean house, living in the goodness of his forgiveness, of freedom, of chains off, 
hundreds of men and women of God free because we stand in the power of Christ. Thanks for joining us today. There's so much going on at Living Rock Church and we'd love for you to be involved. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching. Visit www.livingrock.church or search for us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Instagram.